Just a brief disclaimer, there's more adult stuff this week, as well as some stronger-than-usual violence. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week, on Myths and Legends, we're finishing up the story of Tristan and Isolde, where we'll learn that infectious disease cosplay can solve most of your problems, and you'll see how writing the person you're accused of cheating with to your adultery trial might just save your life. The creature this week is Backwards Horse. It's a horse that can run backwards with his weird noodle legs. Oh, and if it's June 12th, then it's definitely going to eat you. This is Myths and Legends, episode 135C, Homecoming. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the show, King Mark of Cornwall in Great Britain sent his nephew, Tristan, to woo a potential wife, an Irish princess by the name of Isolde. Tristan and Isolde accidentally drank a love potion meant for Mark and Isolde, and for two years, they carried on a secret affair in the castle. At the end of last week's episode, their affair was finally discovered, and the pair was sentenced to death. Isolde screamed as the armored fist connected with Tristan's cheekbone, sending a spray of blood and spit across the room. The injured knight dropped to the flowered floor as King Mark's guards started in with their boots. At last, the king raised his hand, his soldiers immediately taking a step back in unison. It seemed Tristan was sufficiently subdued for his arrest. Puddles of blood clumped in the flower all around the prince. Straining to see past his already swollen eyelids, Tristan tried to meet the gaze of the woman he knew he'd failed. He rose painfully to his feet and turned to Isolde, but the butt of a spear knocked the words and a tooth from his mouth before he could utter them. As the guards dragged Tristan from the room, King Mark glared at the only man he had trusted, his own nephew. There would be no tears from the king. Not yet, anyway. It was quickly decided they would both burn, one after the other, at dusk on the following day. By morning, the entire kingdom knew about the betrayal, and King Mark told himself he had no choice. Tristan remained locked in a cell the entire day. Selfishly, he hoped he would be the first to die. He would scream out among the flames as the fire took his feet, fusing clothes to skin before consuming both. He would scream out his love for Queen Isolde with his final breath. They wouldn't be able to stop him then. And he wouldn't have to listen to her scream wouldn't have to watch in agony as his life and light fell in such a torturous way. It was a selfish thought. He knew. The following day, as the prince limped through town, shackled at the wrists, jeering echoed through the streets at the mere sound of his name. But the people were not angry with Tristan. He was a hero because he had taken Morholt's life, which incidentally meant Morholt stopped stealing the city's children as tribute. The people were indebted to the prince. Tristan lingered before the stone steeple. It loomed in the way he envisioned God looming over the world. Strong, beautiful, impassive. The soldiers tugged on Tristan's chains. Over the people cursing the king and the orders of the soldiers to keep moving, the fire crackled and roared. Hell roared for Tristan. But he resisted. 
Could he stop just a moment and pray? With a sharp tug in his bonds, the guards laughed. <laughs> pray on the pyre, they told him. Keep moving. But Tristram refused, insisting that he had sinned. Please, for the sake of his soul, let him confess. There was only one way into the church, and no back door. Only a cliff. The crowd surrounding Tristram began urging the guards, asking these men how could they consider themselves Christians if they didn't give Tristan the chance to be right with God before he died. In the end, the soldiers conceded, if not for their sense of decency, but for the aggressive mob closing in around them. Greatly annoyed, they unlocked Tristan's chains and shoved him toward the heavy doors of the chapel. He had three minutes. Tristan's feet, bare except for the dirt of the cells crusted along the edges, started slowly. But then he quickly broke out in a run he had been in this chapel before. It had been the location of one of he and Icehold's riskier rendezvous. He knew that it backed up to a cliff and didn't have a back door, but it did have a back window. As his grimy foot found the rugs of the altar, Tristan winced and set his shoulder for the blow, telling himself that no matter how bad it was, it wasn't burning to death. At the last second, the priest looked up from his prayers as the night sailed through the window. We should talk about this, because one of the writers of the story has an agenda. He loves the characters of Tristan and Isolde, and by extension, God loves them. And not in the way that God loves everybody, but God clearly loves and favors Tristan and Isolde over King Mark, the scheming barons, and definitely over the sinister dwarf. He loves the ridiculously traitorous Tristan so much that, as the story goes, God sends him a wind to catch Tristan's clothes fanning them out and cushioning his fall like some sort of flying squirrel. Whether or not it was God's inexplicable flavor, or Tristan catching a lucky break after plummeting 40 feet on a solid rock and not breaking anything, that's what happened. The soldiers outside heard the glass break, but by the time they rushed to the back of the church, Tristan was up and shaking off the glass as he picked his way from rock to rock below. When it was flat enough, he ran, the stones cutting his feet until he found the road. After waiting in the bushes for a few minutes, a rider appeared with a horse in tow. Governor, his tutor, and the only companion he had, was searching for him. It had been carved into the bottom of a stone cup that he drank from that morning in the shorthand only he and Governor knew. Get to the road. Tristan had, and Governor, the man who was more of a friend than a servant, found him. He'd also brought new clothes, a horse, and Tristan's sword. Quickly, the lucky prince dressed, embraced his tutor, mounted his horse, and announced that he would go back to Tintagel, the very place he had just escaped. Governor sputtered, barely able to speak. Seriously. But the prince pointed to the smoke rising from the center of the city in the distance. He would go to the woman he loved. He would rescue her or avenge her. Truly, it was all he could do. Governor seized the reins. If that was what Tristan planned on doing, he should have just died on the pyre and left the other people out of it. Then, from the city gates, the arguing pair heard a scream. Both turned, and they saw Icehold, very much not burning alive, but rather being dragged from the city by 100 unarmed lepers. Tristan and his tutor exchanged glances. Huh, well that was a freebie. They rode for Icehold and the mob carrying her away. Thank you.
Inside the city, not 10 minutes ago, King Mark had stopped the burning of Isolde with a wave of his hand. It was actually the barons who talked him into it. Tristan was a capable knight, well-loved by the people. He wouldn't hurt his uncle, you know, aside from deliberately sleeping with the king's wife for the better part of two years, but the barons weren't sure about their safety. They were the reason he was in the situation at all, and he could raise a revolt and storm any one of their castles. Isolde was their bargaining chip. While she lived, they could placate Tristan, at least until he was recaptured. The king, deeply hurt, looked with hatred upon Isolde. He relished the idea of her burning. And so, when a voice called out from a crowd, suggesting a worse punishment for the woman, he was happy to listen. It was one of the lepers. In a group of 100, to whom the crowd was giving a wide berth, the leper stepped forward. Burning was bad. It was bad. There was no other way to say it. But it was only bad for a few minutes. A half hour if the king really made it last. The lepers, however, could make it bad for a lifetime. The king stepped closer, but eh, not too close. I'm listening. The lead leper grinned. Give the queen to them. All of them. All the lepers would take her back to their huts, and they would hold her in common. She, who grew up as a princess and then lived as a queen, would live in the dirt and filth with them, being used by whoever wanted her. That was their proposal. King Mark thought about it. They had a point. Burning to death was rough, but it wasn't rough for long. This betrayal would serve as a blemish on his house for generations. He looked to Icehold, and then to the lepers. Enjoy. The crowd gasped, and Icehold screamed that she changed her mind. She really wanted to be burned now. But the king commanded that the soldiers toss her chains and the keys to the lepers. The barons tried to step in, saying that if he wanted to do this, cool, really, it was incredibly dark and sadistic, so they were 100% behind it, but wait, wait until Tristan was apprehended, or else he would avenge her. But King Mark wouldn't listen to his barons. Instead, he relished those final moments with Isolde, as she screamed, begging to be thrown into the fire. That's how, outside the city, Tristan chanced upon the crowd of lepers, carrying the chained Isolde away. It wasn't courtly or chivalrous to kill such people, everyone knew, including the group of lepers. And so the mob basically ignored Tristan's threats. That is, until Governal took the lead. Tired of this conversation that wasn't going anywhere, and really wanting to get on the road because they were sitting ducks for the city guard, Governal said that he was not a knight. He was a tutor, and thus, not bound by chivalry. He took a thick branch and beat the lead leper senseless. Quickly, the others scattered. And in moments, Isolde was on Tristan's horse, out of her chains, and the trio headed off into the forest of Maurice. The Baron listened to the baying of his hounds, and he chuckled. Tristan. Tristan had fled into this forest not six months ago, after his daring escape. He was dead by now, or he should be, a prince and a princess forced to live off the land for half a year, hunted relentlessly by the king and his hounds? They were probably decomposing at the bottom of some ravine by now. Regardless, the outcome was functionally identical to them being burned alive. They were fugitives, and as soon as King Mark sought an annulment, he would have to remarry, one of the baron's daughters, no less. Now, though, the baron hunted. The first chill of fall had entered the air, 
and it was nice to get out of the city, to follow his dogs, and he felt a thud on his horse, and a shadow appeared behind him. The Baron froze as the icy grip of a knife pressed onto his throat, and a voice whispered into his ear. Tristan sends his regards. In one fluid motion, the knife sliced, blood sprayed, and the Baron toppled onto the ground, his hands grabbing for his throat. His soft, supple leather gloves came away soaked, and lightheadedness set in. As darkness finally took him, he saw, in his final seconds, the grim face of Governor, Tristan's tutor, as the man climbed down from his horse, put his knife to the Baron's neck, and started sawing. <laughs> this is perfect, Governor thought as he waited for Tristan to return. The old tutor had set up a fun practical joke back at camp, and by fun I mean horrifying, and this is actually in the text. He set the Baron's head on a spear, like a puppet, resting above the bushes, saying, oh hey, what are you kids doing here? I'm gonna kill you guys, rawr. He knew to pump the brakes on the joke when an arrow flew past him. Governor's hands went up, and the head came down. It was a joke, a joke. Same team, man. Governor found Tristan crouching, bow drawn, next to the still sleeping form of Isold. He relaxed and nodded at the head of the Baron. Good. That would send a message. Tristan got to work. Tristan and Isold loved each other. They needed each other. But I'm not exactly sure that they liked each other. The potion had awakened a desire in both of them. A desire that didn't exist before and probably wouldn't have existed without it. And here they were, after everything, scrounging among the detritus in the forest. They loved each other, but that love had destroyed them. They were each other's drug. As long as they were together, they would be in ecstasy and misery, complete and broken. For six months, they had slept and starved in the dirt. Mark's hounds were always on the horizon. They couldn't even sleep in the place they had woken up each morning. By now... Tristan and Isolde had fallen into a routine. He would take the bow he had crafted, named, with equal parts arrogance and desperate hope, fail not, and go hunting. He was good at it now, and they didn't hunger. Even the hermits of the forest were scared to take them in and give them bread. So the trio only ate lean meats of the forest, like deer and rabbit. It was abundant, but fugitives can't live on meat alone. Malnutrition set in, and, as they moved deeper and deeper into the forest... Fatigue plagued the group. The headache and the malaise were omnipresent after four months. The death of the Baron did help. He was the third most powerful man in the kingdom, and, for a long while, the patrol stopped. The pair had found a camp for winter and spring. A helpful hermit sent them bread and stew, and things improved. Until the summer. It was just after Pentecost, and Tristan came back exhausted after running down a boar, Isol was out gathering berries, and she returned to find him, snoring and fully clothed, sleeping next to his sword. There was a reason the animal slept during the heat of the day. They would too. The story makes it awkwardly clear exactly what type of midday nap it was. Saying, in a lot of detail, all the clothes the couple left on. The patrols had stopped, but everything, especially those who braved the forest each day, knew Tristan and Isol's names especially the woodcutter that stumbled on their camp mere minutes after they had fallen asleep. The man shook 
and he ran. He had heard about the Baron and knew about the reward. He would tell the king, but he had to get there before the pair woke up. A sword. A sword lay in between them. This, this disproved everything. Tristan was innocent. Isol was innocent. King Mark was a monster. You ready to suspend some disbelief? Because we're going to need to suspend some disbelief. In the legends of the Middle Ages, sometimes, on quests and whatnot, men and women would need to share the same bed. But it had to be clear to any onlookers, in the audience, that nothing was going on between them. So the man would place his sword in between himself and the woman to signify exactly what they would not be doing that night. Because, you know, a sword couldn't be easily and quickly removed or anything. Well, because Tristan was so tired that he went to bed fully clothed and just dropped the sword next to him, and Isolde laid down next to the sword without another thought, when King Mark burst through the brush, his own sword bare and ready for blood, he was shocked. Here slept Tristan and Isolde, in exile, with nothing to hide, still going to great pains to symbolize their chastity for any that might see. King Mark was speechless. How could he have been so wrong? I sold, why, why do you have gloves on your face? Tristan asked when his eyes opened in mid-afternoon. And she did. She had gloves draped across her face. Fur gloves that she had given King Mark as a gift from Ireland. King Mark had laid them there as a kindness to block the sun from Isolde's eyes as she slept. And also because everyone loves waking up to a nose full of some guy's sweaty riding gloves. That wasn't the only change, though. King Mark had slipped an emerald ring from Isolde's hand as she slept. One that he had given her, and he had taken Tristan's sword as well, but left his own. The message was clear. The king had found the pair in the woods, and where he could have killed them, he had let them live. This only meant one thing. Not that King Mark had forgiven them and they could come home, as it actually meant, but that he was coming back with an army to murder them in front of the people and scatter their ashes all over Cornwall. They fled north that day, leaving Governal, who was still out on an errand. They rode for Wales. Tristan raised his wineskin to the sky, toasting the anniversary. It was three years to the day, three years since his relationship with Isolde started the relationship that had destroyed both of them. Tristan noticed that he was having more thoughts like that, the farther he got away from the chess game on the boat. He still loved her, still needed her, but he was starting to see the good and the bad, when, even one year ago, he was so blindly, passionately in love with her, that he only saw her. Tristan didn't know when, exactly, he drank the potion with Isolde. In fact, he didn't even know he drank a potion, he was so consumed with lust after that first person he saw that he never really thought about why. He didn't know when he drank the potion until the day it wore off. He was mid-chase with the deer when he stopped. Something was different. The world was different. What? What was he doing with his life? His youth? He was a knight and a prince. He had been heir to King Mark's throne and he threw it away. Why? I sold. Tristan sat. The deer got away. I sold. He loved her. 
He had loved her. He didn't know. It was a love that shouldn't have happened. They had been dragged by the post into this life he didn't recognize. He was a fugitive when he should have been a prince. An isolated? She should be a queen, not living in the dirt. Not for any man, and certainly not for him. The love wasn't gone, it was changed. Before, their love existed in a vacuum. It was all that mattered in the world to them. He still loved her, but it was because he loved her that he knew that she must go. This was no life for them, and without the potion blinding them to their day-to-day troubles, their love, like them, would die out here in the wilderness. It was time to go home. Isolde understood. With a glance, Tristan and Isolde broke down and embraced when he returned to camp. What had they done? Tristan wiped the tears from Isolde's eyes and stroked her face, as he had done countless times over the years. But it was different now. She shuddered and he pulled his hand away. He sighed. She felt it too. Their love had been a forest fire, wild, selfish, and all-consuming. They still loved each other, but as Tristan looked in Icehold's eyes, they knew. They knew it was over. Sometimes loving someone means doing what's best for them, even if it hurts, even if it means saying goodbye. Both Tristan and Icehold knew it was time to go home. King Mark folded the letter and turned, smiling, toward the window. His barons were assembled behind him. Tristan had done it. He had found a way home. It was simple, really. With coaching from the monk, Tristan was encouraged to tell the truth. He never willfully undermined the marriage of Mark and Isolde. And he would return. If anyone wanted to sully the good name of the queen, he would challenge them to single combat, much in the same way that Morhold had challenged the kingdom four years ago and none of the nobility, save Tristan, rose to meet that challenge. Tristan only stayed with Isolde now out of a duty to her. In truth, he had never loved her in a sinful way. But, condemned to death for a crime she was not guilty of, he saw no more honorable pursuit than to rescue her. After a very, very short silence, the barons declared that the king would only be right to take Isolde back. It wasn't her fault. Did it have anything to do with them having to fight a knight to the death if they counseled not to take Isolde back? No, no, they didn't think so. It's not like they were deathly afraid of that or anything. The letter that Tristan read that evening told him that it was over. Isolde could come home. He turned to Isolde, the woman that he had loved. It was done. She could go home. She smiled, but it faded as he kept talking. Tristan wouldn't be coming. That was part of the deal he had made. If she was allowed to return, then he would go into exile. King Mark agreed. Tristan hung his head. He loved her, and it was because of her that he would give up his knighthood and any claim he had to the throne. The pair held each other for a long time before Governor told them it was time to go. King Mark was being gracious, and they would be best not to test it. Isolde pulled back and took the ring from her finger, placing it in Tristan's hand and closing his fingers around it. She knew it was still dangerous for them, so she wouldn't believe any letter from him unless it had this ring with it. 
he should send it when he reached where he was going, so she knew he was safe. Tristan nodded, and Icehold kissed him for the last time. A few months later, Mark's household was abuzz with activity. King Arthur and 100 of his knights were coming. Isolde had been back for a few months at this point. Tristan and Governal had taken her as far as the edge of the clearing before, after a final embrace, she slid down from the horse. Tristan nodded at his uncle, who only stared, before the knight and his tutor faded back into the forest. Maybe King Mark was in love with Isolde and trying to make things work. Maybe he was just really, really tired of having the same conversations with his barons. But one day, out on a hunting trip, it came to a head, after casually mentioning for the 14th time that morning that the king should get some sort of public oath from his wife that she never cheated on him, King Mark had had enough. He told the barons that he loved and trusted his wife, and, drawing to a close of a three-part series on this particular storyline, the scheming advisor trope was starting to wear pretty thin. They were dismissed. The barons laughed. He, he couldn't do that. The king sneered. Watch me. Go home, he commanded. They were relieved from duty, and if they were still in his sight come nightfall, they would be stripped of their titles and lands. The king turned his horse and rode for Tintagel alone. Yeah, you really can't do that, the king heard from literally all of his other advisors when he arrived back at court. The barons were the nobility. They controlled, well, everything. His soldiers, food, land, workers. The advisors said they could go on, but they shouldn't need to. Mark needed to get those guys back on his side before they overthrew him. It was Icehold who came forward with an idea. She knew she was innocent. And the advisors were right. They would all be at risk if the barons entered open rebellion. They needed to appeal to a higher court. They needed King Arthur. The barons were bolder now, with Tristan gone. And, you know, not just hiding in the forest outside of town. But if Icehold swore an oath before King Arthur and 100 of his knights, and Arthur accepted it, then the barons would have to deal with the likes of men like Gawain and Yvain if they wanted to besmirch her honor again. King Mark thought about it, and Isolde was right. It was the only way. He would send messengers to King Arthur the next morning. Isolde hugged her husband and thanked him for trusting her. She went to bed, but before she did, she sent out two messengers of her own, one to Arthur's court, to get her version of the story out there before any other, and another to Tristan, in the forest, who, who would have to help with another plan. That is, if he still felt the same way about her as she felt about him. Oh, whoa, woe is me. I never thought I would be an unlucky beggar, but oh, look at me. Ah, I'm so obviously in a bad spot in life as evidenced by my loud wailing and open sores that aren't just strawberry preserves. Ah, things are so bad. Tristan stopped as people walked away from him. He nodded. Nailed it. Tristan was incognito on the day of Icehold's oath and, if he could say so, was absolutely killing it. He felt the chainmail and sword strapped to his side, all underneath his big, smelly cloak. Icehold's messengers had made it to Camelot first and successfully rallied Arthur, Gawain, Yvain, and others to their side before King Mark's formal request even made it through. Now, the day was here. Tristan watched from beneath his soiled cloak as the knights of the round table rode up to cheering crowds. Then, he arrived. 
Arthur smiled to the crowds all around him as he rode in. Through Isolde's messengers, Tristan learned that King Arthur was sympathetic to Isolde, and he would rule in her favor. Everything was going to be all right. And then, King Arthur sank, or rather, his horse sank. Apparently, the marsh was so bad leading up to the grounds where Isolde would be judged that the horses sunk up to their ribs. It took a lot of pushing from a team of peasants and surprisingly buff lepers to get the horses out of the mud. But then a familiar face rounded the corner. It was Isolde. She immediately recognized the man she had spent three years in love with and, with mock sternness, told him to help her get down from her horse. Peasant. She would be riding him across the marsh. With a wink from behind his self-constructed massive sores, Tristan helped the queen down from her horse. Bent down, and she jumped on his back. I'm not sure if he made clip-clock sounds as he plodded across next to the sinking horses, himself not sinking because they weighed considerably less than a horse and a rider, but soon they were on the other side of the marsh. If it seems like kind of a pointless gambit to go to your trial for cheating on your husband, riding on the back of the man with whom you cheated on your husband, you're probably right about that. Everyone in the kingdom was surprised when the queen rounded the corner, not on the back of her horse, but on a buff leper, who looked a lot like the king's exiled nephew, who got them all into this trouble. Tristan tried to stay in character, but it only made things worse as King Arthur and King Mark made their way over, and Tristan humbly begged them for dinner that night. Isolde's eyes widened as she said this stupid, fat leper was forgetting his place. She felt him under his cloak, which, yeah, is what got them into that trouble, and not only was he doing well in the food department, but he had, like, whole loaves of bread tucked into his belt. Really, he just needed to get out of here right now and probably not say another word or look at anyone. Okay, go. The man who was definitely a sickly beggar hobbled off into the forest as the trial began. Arthur had packed a holy relic. And there, after having changed out of their muddy pants, Arthur and Mark, flanked by dozens of knights at the round table, sat before Isolde and the three barons. Arthur announced that this would be the end of the accusations. If today... Isolde swore that she never loved Tristan wickedly or wrongfully, then anyone who accused her of the old crimes again would be killed. Isolde stepped forward and put her hands on the holy relic, which were usually the petrified body parts of saints, so yeah, fun times. She said, and this gets slightly graphic here, that no man had ever been in between her thighs, save her husband, King Mark, and the leper whose back she just rode in on across the ford. She excluded those two men from the oath, if anyone wanted her to swear more, she would do so here and now. And then pray that no one wanted her to swear more. Arthur stood, with Gawain and Yvain at his sides. Well, that was enough for him. He turned to the three barons, but spoke to the king. Arthur declared that if anyone accused Isolde again, or withdrew to his castle and threatened war, they would not have just King Mark to contend with, but the knights of the rest of Great Britain as well. As long as Arthur lived, Isolde's honor was safe. He turned to Mark, pleading with him not to believe any ill rumors about Isolde again. With a sigh and a smile at his wife, he agreed. If he believed something evil of her now, after all this, he would only have himself to blame. Arthur looked left and looked right. Okay, we good? We, we done here? He was going to pick up his check for his cameo appearance and just head back home. Over the next couple of weeks, the bodies of the three barons were found, one by one, 
at night around the forest outside Tintagel. One's body came in the next morning, thudding on his terrified horse. Another's head was never found. The last was found pinned to a tree, an arrow through his eye. A visitor came one night, when Mark was out on a hunting trip. It was a form Isold knew well, from a different time, a happier and a sadder time. She embraced Tristan. He said he was leaving. With the barons dead and Isold safe, there was no reason for him to remain in Cornwall. Isold looked to the ground. She knew it was true. She knew it was selfish to want him to stay with her. Their love was still a deep one, but they could never be, and they both knew it. He took her into his arms, and he held her. He would never forget her, and, someday, he prayed that they'd see each other again. Out of respect for his uncle's marriage, he stole out the window before anything else happened. A week later, Isold found a pretense to enter the forest, where she arrived at Tristan's hovel where he had lived for the past year. It was empty. He truly was gone. Two years later, Tristan was sitting on the battlefield. He was in Brittany, in modern-day France, a sea and a continent away, but his heart was still in Cornwall, in that room they had shared with Isold for three wonderful, terrifying years. He sang of her. He figured that was safe here. The barons were dead, and no one knew her name. He had entered the service of a king and helped him repel invaders from the north. He was sitting on the king's pavilion on the battlefield, plucking and singing a simple tune of Isold when the prince, the heir to the throne, asked if Tristan knew Isold. Tristan nodded. And Tristan loved her? Tristan paused. Yes. Yes, he did. It was weird to say that out loud for once, but it was true. He loved Isold, and he would always love Isold. Well, you know, you can marry her. I can make that happen. Tristan stopped playing. Uh, what? Isold of the White Hands was the princess in Brittany at the time, and the sister of the prince in question. And she was beautiful, and it had been a year. Tristan needed to move on. He was still young, and he was still a knight. He could be happy again he told himself. So he accepted. Isolde of the White Hands was beautiful. Not as beautiful as the Isolde back home, but, in Tristan's opinion, no one was. He agreed to the marriage, and the king and Caherdon, the prince, were thrilled. Finally, Tristan's life was moving on, until he saw the ring. He had made it all through his wedding day without thinking of Isolde, the one back in Cornwall, once despite being married to someone with the exact same name. Not sure how that works. He managed all day, until they were back at his room, in the warm glow of the firelight, as they were about to uh, consummate their marriage. His eyes fell on the emerald ring Icehold had given him in the woods, and he remembered her, and this woman he had married wasn't her. Ah, he winced in bed, and his wife asked him what the matter was, he said it was an old wound, one that had never healed. She sat up. Where was it? Could she help? Uh, he shook his head. It, it was deep within, but it wasn't like a metaphor for unrequited love and emotional pain, so don't dig too deep or anything. It was just an old battle wound that made uh, what they were about to do kind of difficult for him. He wasn't really feeling it tonight. I saw the white hands hugged him close, 
she said that that was okay, really. She didn't care. She just wanted to be with him in whatever form that took. He held her, and together, they fell asleep. They had been married for nearly a year, when Isolde of the White Hands was out riding with Cairdon, her brother. Their brother and sister had always been close. Close enough, apparently, for Isolde to make the comment, as the water rose and splashed her thighs, that the water was being more forward with her than any man had ever been. Cairdon chuckled. And then he remembered that she was married to one of his best buddies. He slowed his horse to a stop. Wait, did that mean she and Tristan had never... Isolde shrugged and threw up her hands. Nope, never. It wasn't for lack of trying, either, on her part at least. He just had an old wound that flared up every time they tried. Cairdon apologized to his sister, and they had to cut their trip short. Back at the castle, Tristan's door slammed open. Cairdon demanded to know why his sister wasn't good enough for Tristan. Tristan held up his hands. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not that Isol wasn't good enough for him. It was just that he had never gotten over another woman that was way more beautiful than Cairdon's sister. That's exactly what I said, Cairdon yelled. Yeah, but it sounded worse the way you said it. Cairdon shook his head. This was unconscionable. Tristan rose and put his hand on the shoulder of the prince, saying that if he showed Cairdon what Isolde the Fair looked like, that she was actually way hotter than his sister, would that make him feel better? Cairdon grimaced. I mean, maybe? I don't know, man. All this is just really weird. Tristan smiled. Excellent. Then they would sail for Britain in the morning. What follows is just an odd little interlude where Tristan and Cairdon somehow catch wind of Isolde's travel plans and wait in the bushes along her route. Cairdon sees Isolde from Cornwall is, in fact, much better looking than his sister, and in the end he forgives Tristan for his multitude of completely selfish and avoidable sins. And the pair return to Brittany, where Tristan can resume his sham marriage. And Cairdon can see that it's justified, because his sister isn't as good looking as Tristan's ex. If it seems like the writer of this story is bending over backwards to absolve Tristan and Isolde of absolutely any wrongdoing whatsoever... It's because he is. We'll talk about it at the end of the show. Life was comfortable in Brittany, but it wasn't fulfilling. Tristan was a few years older, married to a princess, and no longer in constant fear for his life. But something was missing. He was meant to do more, meant to be more, and, most importantly, he was supposed to be with Isolde. The years and the distance between them had only confirmed this feeling. Still, he knew that if he set foot on the island of Great Britain, Mark would know, and Mark would find him. He could think of no way to go back. Until one night. Tristan arrived home one night to find all the candles out in his house. He yelled for one of his servants, but it was silent. Sir Tristan, the time has come for you to claim your destiny and join us on our quest. A voice boomed from the darkness. A quieter, separate, nice job, man, the rehearsing really paid off, came from the shadows, as three knights stepped into the light of Tristan's lantern. You probably don't know us, but we're knights of the round table. I'm Gawain, and this is Yvain in person. Tristan held up a hand and stopped him right there. Tristan said, I was at Isolde's Oath, where you guys rode out with King Arthur. Well, two of you at least. I was the beggar with leprosy that gave a piggyback ride to Isolde. That's how we got around the oath. You know what? It's not important. How can I help you guys? Gawain locked eyes with Tristan. The island of Great Britain was in danger, and legend had it that the most powerful of the Judeo-Christian artifacts was hidden on the island, and could save it. 
they were going to find it. Oh, the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, Tristan said. What? No. No, 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 I got it, I got it. Moses' staff. It turns into a snake, and then there's this whole thing with the plagues and the Red Sea. No, Gwen shot back, growing more frustrated. Okay, the Spear of Destiny? You know, the lance that pierced Christ's side? That's not the most famous of artifacts, but still respectable. Uh, I mean, that's part of it, Gawain replied, and then he unrolled a scroll with a picture on it. We're looking for this. What, a cup? Tristan said. Gawain grimaced. It wasn't just any cup. It was the cup. The grail. What's a grail? If it's a cup, just say a cup. Gawain rolled up the scroll. Look, it was a big deal. Like, the biggest deal. It was their generation's Trojan War. Every knight who hadn't been killed by the knights that would be going on this quest would be part of this quest. And since Tristan had killed one of their fellow knights of the round table, an Irish knight by the name of Morholt, they wanted him to come along. Tristan thought about it. He didn't care about the Grail, or even Great Britain. But he did care about Isolde, and going on this quest would get him closer to her. He turned to the three knights. He smiled. I'm in. Weeks later, a letter came for Isolde at Tintagel. It came alongside a familiar piece of jewelry. As she held the emerald ring in her hand, her heart beat faster. She read the message. A single piece of paper with a single sentence. It said, See you soon. Now, those of you familiar with the original text, the one by Barul, know about a different ending. In that, Caherdin, the Prince of Cornwall, struck up an affair with the knight's wife. Tristan, knowing all about sleeping with the wife of a powerful man, didn't want Caherdin to make a fatal mistake, so he helped arrange their meetings. He must have been out of practice, because the knight caught on, and they were ambushed by poison arrows. Caherdin was killed instantly, but Tristan rode back to the castle, where he knew that there was only one person able to save him, the love of his life, Isolde. His wife came in, but he shooed her away before commanding his servants to go fetch the other Isolde, the woman he loved, from Cornwall, slipping in and out of delirium with a fever. He pulled in Aegeus, where he asked them to return with white sails if Isolde agreed to help, and black if she didn't. Days passed, and his wife stayed by his side, feeding him, changing his bedding and clothing. She never mentioned what she overheard about Isolde, but the anger grew within her, those years together. She never cared about the issues that he had, if he loved her, but he didn't love her, did he? He had never loved her. A horn came from outside, and Tristan sat up for a few moments of lucidity. Isolde? Had she come? What color were the sails? Isolde of the white hands, his wife, looked out the window to the white sails, before looking at her husband. Black. She left the room without another word, and Tristan died alone, filled with sorrow at the knowledge that Isolde the woman he loved had heard his pleas from across the sea and had chosen not to come. He died mere minutes before Isolde rushed into his room, the only person skilled enough to save him. 
Veering off again from that text, there are a couple accounts of what happens next. The main work says that Isolde, weeping over the body of Tristan, died of a broken heart. I also read of another version, where, seeing as Tristan's wife didn't want him, Isolde took the body back to Tintagel, where Tristan could be buried with his family. When she returned, she and Mark exchanged glances. It was over, and King Mark allowed Tristan to be buried by the other members of their family. But then, Mark outlived Isolde, and when she finally went, two trees miraculously grew up between the queen and Tristan's graves, intertwining. Furious, Mark had the trees cut down, but three times they grew back. In death, as in life, there seemed to be nothing he could do to keep them apart. Tristan and Isolde are complicated characters. Their love is something that would be a kind of shocking and scandalous thing in Arthurian legend. Definitely not the behavior of a knight and a queen, that is, if not for the love potion. The love potion completely gives them a pass, morally, from all their bad behavior. And Brule, the author of the earliest version of today's story, wants you to know that Tristan and Isolde are completely blameless, and anyone who says otherwise is an evil monster. Seriously, he jumps in the text multiple times and tells you this. I was a lot more judicious with the barons and the dwarf in my retelling, but Barul just hurls invectives at them every time they appear on the page. He is not subtle at all about his love for the main characters. Now, most of this is, up until the very end, the original version. Later, more famous versions, interweave Tristan's story with the larger Arthurian narrative. I kind of wanted to have my cake and eat it too. Since Tristan's story is longer than the original, I wanted the option to come back to the characters later with the quest for the Holy Grail, as is the case with many of the tellings of the Grail story. So, yes, the canon version, in this podcast at least, is Gwen and Yvain and pers- another knight coming to recruit Tristan for the Holy Grail and him returning to Great Britain. And we will see Tristan and Isolde again, eventually, when we finally get to the quest for the Holy Grail. Next week, we're going back and finishing the story of Pecos Bill. So, if you want a refresher, you should go check out episode 74. Next week, though, we'll see what happened after Bill lassoed the Twister, how he found love, and how he successfully pitched the devil on an investment deal. The creature this week is the Luferlang, a fearsome critter from the US. If you've listened to the Paul Bunyan episodes, then you'll know that fearsome critters are the creatures that lumberjacks used to tell each other about in the late 1800s when they were playing cards and hanging out at night. If you find yourself out in the forest, looking into the mad, feral eyes of the Luferlang, a horse-like creature who can kill you with a bite, you're actually probably okay. Unless it's June 12th, and the Luferlang hasn't fulfilled his bite quota of at least one bite per year. In which case, I hope you brought a full-length mirror. I'll explain. The Luferlang is like a horse, but triple-jointed, so if it wants to turn around, it doesn't have to spend a few annoying seconds actually turning around, because all of its legs work the other way. It also has a fun, exorcist-style neck, where it can turn its head all the way around, and it has a tail in the middle of its back, on a swivel, so it can get flies anywhere on its body. But yeah, even with all those things, its most distinctive feature is its one-day hunting season. It's said to be a ferocious hunter, but only if you're that really one unlucky person, the one time it bites and eats per year. Your odds are astoundingly small, but if you find yourself staring into its horse eyes and try not to stare at its creepy joints and even creepier head, you have some options. It hates the color orange, 
of course, and will run from it. But if you don't happen to be wearing orange, hopefully you're carrying a full-length mirror. You know, the one we all take on hikes. Because the only thing this sad, kind of gross creature hates more than orange is itself. Pull out the full-length mirror, and the creature will be so grossed out by its neck, weird horse noodle legs, and Vegas dancer feather-like tail on its back, and it will get as far away from that ugly monster as possible. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>